Here's what the word says in Romans 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. All right, we're continuing in the book of Romans, Romans 7, 1 through 6 this morning. And uh, to begin, just a couple of quick comments about purpose. A life in God has purpose. Life in God has purpose. In fact, this has been the case since the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and he created man and woman. He put us in the garden and he gave us purpose. He said, uh, serve, have dominion, uh, order the creation, uh, and also be sustained by that which I have made. Uh, One one, uh, uh, famous document says the chief end of man is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so God did not create us arbitrarily on a whim for no apparent reason. God created us uh, for purpose. And in fact, God gave us a good purpose, and then we uh, rebelled against it and rejected it. So God gives us purpose, and we didn't like it. We wanted a different purpose, which was not life in God, but actually life sustained by our own uh, diligence, which, of course, was a death sentence. So God gave us purpose, and we rebelled against it. But we have to also recognize God didn't merely create us Uh, give us purpose in creation, that also means by its very nature, our redemption in Christ has purpose. Uh, It's not simply because God feels bad that we sinned and he doesn't want us to die and, and so he tries to help us out. There is an intentional purpose to what God is doing uh, in uh, and through us by saving us. And a, a good question all of us should ask ourselves every now and then is, why am I a Christian? And what's the purpose of it? What's the, what's the point of being a Christian? Why do I trust God? And a, a lot of us would say, because I want to go to heaven. That's a good thing. Let's go to heaven. But of the alternatives, that's the best one, obviously. And uh, so we would say, well, I want to know God, and I want to be a Christian because I want to go to heaven. So here's the question, though. If the purpose of being a Christian is to go to heaven, what do we do till then? Because we're not there yet. I don't know if you've noticed. So if our purpose is to go to heaven, then that's too small of a purpose because that actually would mean the Christian life before heaven is pointless. There's no purpose to it, but God doesn't do that, and the passage is going to make us quite clear. So certainly we go to heaven, and that's where we enjoy God most profoundly forever, but there must be more to the purpose of being saved than merely going to heaven. So salvation from God is new life. Salvation from God is redemption. And so if salvation from God is new life in Christ, then I'm going to suggest from our passage this morning that salvation from God is also a new purpose 
for us, beginning immediately. Not when we die and go to heaven, but beginning immediately, we have a new purpose. And as believers, we ought to be evaluating, well, what does God put as a call in my life for my purpose? And what does that mean as far as me living my life for Christ today? So that's the title of the message today, A New Life and Purpose. First three verses of Romans 7, A New Life and Purpose, first thing is a life of freedom from sin. A new life and purpose, first thing is, this is a life of freedom from sin. I don't know if you've ever been in the military. I wasn't, uh, but I have a lot of relatives who are in the military. But something happens with a lot of folks who come out of the military, is they grow a beard. I'm growing my winter beard. A lot of guys coming out of the military will promptly grow a beard. Or if uh, maybe you're a Vietnam area, a lot of guys come out of the military and they grew their lamb chops. Got to have our long sideburns because... Uh, you know, the, the, the Navy wouldn't let you have long uh, lamb chops. So you grow a beard. And, uh, and so why, why is this? A guy who has never wanted a beard in his entire life goes in the military. The first thing he does getting out of the military is grow a beard. Why? Because now he can. Because now it's not against the rules to grow a beard. So doggone it, I'm going to grow a beard. And in fact, one, one uh, uh, retired military person put it this way. Listen, my entire career, everywhere I go, everybody knew I was a GI. I, it was clear I had just shaved that morning, and I had a haircut that told everybody, you're from the base. And he said, now I want to be able to go into a coffee shop and not be recognized as the GI. I just want to be Bill, or whatever his, uh, his name was. So there was this sense of freedom from regulation. Since I am free from regulation, I'm going to live like I am free from regulation. Once you're retired or discharged from the military, the military regulations no longer apply. Here's what we're getting at here in the first three verses. In Christ, the law no longer applies. In Christ, the, the law no longer applies. We are free from having to obey the law code in order to be identified as the people of God. We are free from having to obey the law code in order to be identified as the people of God. And we're going to learn this as we work our way through the passage and this may seem counterintuitive, but wait for it. Freedom from the law is actually also means freedom from sin. Freedom from the law also means freedom from sin. And we have a new life and purpose, and our purpose is a life of freedom from sin. And one of the ways that's accomplished is we have, are no longer under the law code. Look at verse 1 of Romans 7. Do you not know, brothers... For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. A general principle here. Uh, the law only applies to alive people. The law does not apply to dead people. One of the things we've learned already in the book of Romans, we're going to re review some, some more this morning, is the law does not fix sin. If there's a particular sin in your life, would it help if you wrote up on the refrigerator... Don't, whatever that is for you. Would that help? Would that fix the sin problem to write a list of things not to do? And the answer is no. What the Bible teaches us, in fact, is a law code inflames in us our desire for that sin. Right now, they're not enforcing the 20-mile-per-hour speed limit around schools. Now, be aware, they're going to start pretty soon because schools are going to start meeting. And this is what's funny. I hear people all the time, it's 20 mile an hour, it's ridiculous, I gotta get to work. 
and all of a sudden I'm in front of school and everybody's going 20 miles an hour. This same person at any given time on Crater Lake Avenue in the left lane is going 20 miles an hour. I know because I'm behind them. I'm like, really? This is four lanes here plus a turn lane. I think you can squeeze it up to 30. But they get in front of a school and they're blowing a gasket. Why? Because somebody's making them drive 20 miles an hour. That per same person pulls onto the freeway, gets in the left lane and does not uh, measurably increase their speed. And, you know, semi-trucks are passing them on the right-hand side. The whole time they're, they're typing in their text their sternly worded letter to the editor about why school zones shouldn't be enforced right now. Well, why is this? Because the law doesn't fix our behavior. In fact, the law just simply reinforces what we want to do. Tell us not to do something and we want to do it all uh, the more. So law doesn't fix our sin, it makes it worse. And not only that, since we are unable to escape the obligations of the law, the law binds us in our sin and then sentences us to death. That's what the law code does for us. It shows us we are sinners, makes us worse sinners, and then executes us because of our, our sin. But what this is saying is the law doesn't apply to dead people. So, so, law, so sin leads to death, and once you're dead, don't worry about it. The law doesn't apply anymore. The problem is once you die, you face judgment. So what we need is the ability to live out from under the law code. Well, how is that possible? And so he gives us an illustration in verses 2 and 3 of Romans 7. Uh, a married woman is bound to by law to her husband while he lives. If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So if a woman is married to a man and he passes away, she is now a widow. And now she is free from the, the constraints of the covenant relationship she had with her husband. She certainly maybe wasn't burdened by them, nor did she mind them. But now that he is dead, she is no longer constrained by them. She wants to go out to coffee with a man she's interested. She can do so. She wants to marry another man. She can do so. She is no longer uh, would be betraying her husband because that man who has passed away is not her husband. And this is common knowledge. I don't think I have to convince you of these things. And that's exactly what he said. This is common knowledge. If a, a person has been widowed, they are free to marry if they, so, if they so choose to do so. But on the flip side, if her husband is still alive and she remarries, what do we think of that? Well, the Bible is quite clear. That's adultery. To have a marriage kind of relationship with someone who is not your spouse and your spouse is still living, uh, that's adultery. And that's what he says. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. In marriage, uh, the vows we often say in modern American marriages is, until death do we part. Depending on the status of your marriage, you may say, you first. I don't know. That was terrible. We'll edit that out. So we understand that a widowed uh, or a widower is released from the covenant of marriage. And what we also need to understand, Paul is telling us, we are also released from the covenant, the connection we have with the law, if we are dead. The problem is, that seems like a steep price to pay. How, how could I possibly come out from the, the confines of the law? I'm trapped by it. It tells me I'm a sinner. I have no way to be right enough to not be a sinner. And it convicts me uh, to death. So, so what can I do? Well, let's look at a couple of different verses. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but back in uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And you can read those chapters later. 
And Abraham is talking with God, and God is going to affirm this covenant with Abraham. And so he uh, tells Abraham, get some animals. Cut them in half and arrange them in a row. And what he's asking Abraham to do is a very common thing. We've talked about it here before, and one author has mentioned this. This is a very common treaty of the time of Abraham. It's called a suzerain treaty. And the way these treaties normally work is a great giant king with a massive army will show up at the doorstep of a very small, minor, insignificant king. And this great king will say, you know what we think we're going to do is destroy you and your kingdom. However, if you promise to send us 10,000 vats of wine and 2,000 vats of olive oil and 200 sheep every single year, we promise not to wipe you out. And so the guy does the cost-benefit analysis, death, send some wine, oil, and sheep. I think we have a deal. And so they would then execute a treaty. Some animals would be arranged in a row sometimes cut in half as Abraham did. Other times what they would do is cut one leg off an animal and shove it down that animal's throat. That's disgusting. That's what they would do, and they would put that there. The smaller king, the insignificant king, the loser king, would walk through the animals, and he would pledge allegiance to the greater king, saying, may it be done to me, as was done to these animals, if I reject our covenant. So if I reject the covenant of sending you wine and oil and sheep and abandon you as my great king, then may it be done to me what has been done to these animals. May I be cut in two or have my leg cut off and... Yeah, that's gross. So that's the way these covenants work. Now look at Abraham and God. What happens? Abraham cuts the animals in half and then what does he do? Takes a nap. Falls into a deep, deep sleep. And then a fire pot, which is God himself. What? What, what happens? God passes through the animals, and that is very strange. Why would the great conquering king be passing through the animals? And what we can understand from this is God is saying, may it be done to me if you break this covenant. Now, why would God do that? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Because that's what he's like. Because he is a God who redeems. And so we learned very early on, there is a way for us to get out from under this covenant, and he's laying uh, the groundwork for how this is going to work. Well, did God have it done unto him when the covenant was broken? Did we break the covenant? Did Abraham break the covenant? Yeah, next chapter. Yeah, next chapter. Did, uh, did Israel break the covenant? Yeah, read what Moses says about Israel in Deuteronomy. Something like, you have been rebelling against God from the moment we left Egypt. So, Israel broke the covenant? Yes. Are you a Christian today? If you're a Christian, have you broken the covenant? Have you, been, uh, have you turned your back on Christ in the course of your Christian life? You don't have to say it out loud. So, since the covenant has been broken, has God kept his end of the deal? May it be done to me if the covenant is broken. Look at Genesis. Did I say Genesis? The other G book, Galatians 2.19. It'll be up on the screen. Let me read Galatians 2.19 through 21. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. How did he do that? He tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Many of us have memorized Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. And what you may not have remember, noticed was this verse is actually about what happened to the law in your life. 
Paul is saying this. The Holy Spirit is telling us through Paul, through the law, I died. How did I die? Because God fulfilled what he promised Abraham to that day. He said, may it be done to me if you break the covenant. And we all broke the covenant. And so what happened? Jesus on the cross. He was sacrificed just like he said he was going to do. So Jesus dies on the cross. And now what Paul is suggesting here and making quite plain in Galatians is this. When I put my faith in Christ, I by faith join him on the cross. That's what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. So if I put my faith in Christ, I am crucified with Christ. I die with Christ. So now it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How do I know Christ is alive? The tomb was empty. So therefore, if I died with Christ, and if Christ is raised, what does that mean about you and I? We are raised with Christ. So if I have died, what is my relationship to the law? There is none. I'm a widower. I have that covenant, that relationship is broken because I have died. The law does not apply to dead people. Since we have died in Christ, the law no longer has any authority over me. Jesus said it this way. I have not come to abolish the law, but to, what's it say? Fulfill it. So he lives a perfect life, obeys the law exactly as it's supposed to be done. And then he dies on the cross. So having lived and fulfilled the law, he dies. The law now no longer has any obligation over us. Has no longer has any power over us. When we put our faith in Christ, the law code is dead. There's no longer a rule book to follow to be made righteous. When I put my faith in Christ, I am made righteous because he is righteous. Because he followed the law, he fulfilled it. And so I gain his righteousness. I gain his life. I have a new life and purpose. I have a freedom from the law. And because I am free from the law, I am free from sin. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness were through law, Christ died for no purpose. Why does he say that? Because the Galatians were caught up in this belief that you get saved by faith and you live as a Christian by works. You get saved by faith. You get saved by grace. God, it's a gift of God. But once you're a Christian, now you, you've got a contract that says you need to work your tail off to keep God happy with you. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. You are saved by faith. You are live as a Christian by faith, and we die and go to heaven by faith. Our righteousness uh, in salvation and our righteousness as Christians and our righteousness as heaven is by Christ only, not through the law. You are not a great Christian, and you can thank the Lord for that. Why? Because your righteousness is not yours. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians, he considered his righteousness what? Filthy rags. He said, no, I don't want to be a good Christian. I want Jesus to be my righteousness day in and day out. I wake up this morning and you wake up this morning righteous in Christ because he's awesome, not because you are. John chapter 19. Last few minutes of Jesus' life before the resurrection, we should say. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. After this, if you're saying after what? Read it yourself. Okay, you know where we're at. You can go read it after church. Okay, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture. This is so funny. I got to stop here. Listen, here's 
He's dying on the cross. He's taking all of the wrath of God on our behalf. He's suffering physically and mostly spiritually, and he's still checking off the to-do list. You know, no, I got, I got one more thing I got to do, make sure everything's fulfilled. I love this. I mean, it just will of the Father come. Uh, good days, bad days, hanging on a cross or not, the Father's will is going to be done. I love that. Anyway, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. Some of you don't like wine. You say, that describes all wine. But this was uh, high vinegar content, probably not even any alcohol in it. If it did, it was just nasty. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? It is almost done. As long as my believers follow me real closely, then it'll be done. I mean, I've got, it's 90% done. We just got to finish it up for him, right? Now, it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit. So the reason I bring this up is because if we're going, the second part of this passage, we're going to get into living by the spirit. That is a useless conversation. If we don't learn to sort of soak in the reality that it's finished. As long as it's not quite finished in our minds, as long as there's a little bit more that I've got to do to keep God cool with me, as long as there is a sense of obligation, living by the Spirit, as we're going to describe, is really, really challenging. The joy of walking by the Spirit is the joy of knowing it's done. There is no more righteousness for us to earn. There is no more joy for God to have in us because all of that occurs through Christ. We put our faith in Christ and he says it is finished. So our life and our purpose is accomplished when we really when we believe it. Not just when we are saved, certainly when we are saved, but in the day in and day out of walking with Christ, do we recognize it is finished? Or do we wake up in the morning and gird our loins and say, today's going to be a better day. I'm going to, I'm going to really do it right. And God's going to hear my prayers because I'm going to really dial it in and do some good stuff today. And I'm going to really say no to those really bad sins today. And I'm going to, I'm going to knuckle down. And then if you're like most people, you get to the end of the day. And what are you saying as your head hit the pillow? Blew it again. Because when you tell yourself... In the morning, you get up in the morning. I, I did it this weekend. You tell yourself in the morning, okay, I'm not going to get all riled up when things get tense. You ever done that? Okay, no, I'm going to be calm today. No, it's good. He's, Don't judge me. i got three kids. Jeez. And so you get up in the morning. No, no, we're good. What did I just create? What did I just create? I just created a law. And what does the law do? The law inflames my sin. It doesn't fix it. Creating a law that today I've got to be a good guy today doesn't fix my sin problem. It never fixes it. And that's what you do too. You get up in the morning. Okay, I'm not going to do this today. I'm going to go to work. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get bad at my coworker. I'm not going to, whatever it is for you. And you've just created a law in your mind that if I can do this, God will like me. You wouldn't say it that way, but underneath there's that sense. And what we, what we just did is we put ourselves under a law. But, the, but we're dead to the law, and the law doesn't fix sin. What fixes sin? It is finished. Fixes sin. It is finished. I am righteous in Christ. Waking up in the morning, foot hit the ground. 
I don't need to be a good Christian today to be a good Christian today because Jesus already was for me. That is the power of sin, over sin in our lives. It is finished. We have to uh, allow the reality of Christ's completed work on the cross and his, the power of his resurrection to be the definition of who we are as Christians before we're ever going to move into what does it mean to walk by the Spirit. We have a new life and a new purpose. It's a life of freedom from sin because the law no longer applies and Jesus was righteous for us. All right, so the question you're asking, since we're free from the law, does that mean we get to do anything? Since we're free from the law, does that mean we get to do anything? That's actually a fair question. I'm not being silly. I'm not trying to uh, get you riled up, but uh, that's a fair question. In fact, in, in Romans, uh, he's going to ask, the, he's asked this question, you know, since we, uh, since there's so much grace, can we keep on sinning so there's more grace? So if we're free from the law, does that mean we can do anything? Here's the answer to that. Because it sounds like it's a yes or no answer, but here's the actual answer to that, and we're going to discover this in verses 4, 5, and 6. Why would you want to? So that's the actual answer. So if I'm free from the law, can I do anything? You say, but why would you want to do anything? So let's look at it. Verses 4, 5, and 6 of Romans 7. I'm going to read them again just to remind you uh, what they say. Likewise, my brothers, you have also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way, of the written law code. A new life and purpose, a life of freedom from sin. Secondly, a new life and purpose, a life of power of the Spirit. A life of power of the Spirit. Best basketball player that ever lived? Michael Jordan? That's it. Conversation over. It's not even an argument. So if you think it's somebody else, you are free in the United States of America to be wrong about something. Michael Jordan had a unique thing in his contract. It's, been, it's pretty well known. You may have heard of, it, heard of it before, but it was very unique. In fact, he may have been the only one that had this in his contract at the time. It was called the Love of the Game Clause. I don't know if you've heard of this, but most basketball, professional basketball players in their contract, it says you get to play basketball when you're wearing our uniform at our facility or it's game day. Other than that, you don't get to play. We don't need you snapping a leg while you're out playing and having a good time. And Michael Jordan went to the Bulls and said, I want a love of the game clause in my contract, which says I get to play basketball whenever I want. And they said, why would you want that? And what was his answer? Because I love playing basketball. And he played all kinds of charity games at North Carolina where he went to school, and he played charity games for uh, different foundations. And, and he loved to play basketball, and he wasn't worried about getting injured. He didn't want somebody telling him he couldn't play basketball. So certainly he got paid a few dollars to play basketball professionally, from what I understand. But he also wanted to play basketball just because he loved hooping it up. So the question here for us, since the law is gone, since there's no contract over us, so do we get to do whatever we want? And the, actual, and the answer is, is actually this. Yes, we are called to do whatever we want. And the, the way this works is we have the joy of having the Spirit work in us so that we are, we're changed and the things we want to do are the things of God. 
So the law doesn't tell us what to do anymore. The goal here is that the Holy Spirit works on our hearts and changes our hearts. So can I do whatever I want? Yes, and our prayer is that the Holy Spirit is transforming us so that what we want is what God wants. So we do what ought to be done and we say no to what ought not to be done because God has made us to recognize that's what is good and right and it's the desire of our hearts. What do we call that when our heart desires what God wants and we do it for him? And the Bible calls that worship. It's not just music. It's how we navigate our day in and day out lives. When we navigate relationships in our home and at work and in our community, when we navigate through our responsibilities and our stewardships, and we do those things with this question first and foremost, what is God's spirit moving toward in this area of my life? That is simply worship. We haven't got to it yet, but Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, make your life an act of worship, a living sacrifice. So since the law is gone, what the Bible calls us to do is a life by the Spirit, which is a life motivated and moved by God's things from a heart that desires Him and His things. Verse 4, the law does not apply anymore because we have died to the law through Christ. But it doesn't mean we are now independent. It doesn't mean we are autonomous. It doesn't mean we're on our own. We no longer belong to the law. But what does verse 4 says? You now belong to another to him who is raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit to God. So there's the aim of our life in Christ, to bear fruit to God. So in, under the law, we're always usually asking this question, what am I not supposed to do? What's, what's naughty? What am I supposed to say no to? A life in the spirit, when we're dead to the law, says, how do I bear fruit to God. Now that I belong to the Lord, how do I bear fruit uh, to him? And he contrasts life of the spirit and life of the law. Verse five, when we were dead in our sin, when we were in our flesh, we would do the things that were sinful and the result was death. So before Christ, we bore fruit. But now we, we, and then we were bearing fruit to death. Now in Christ, by the spirit, we have the joy of doing and living our life by the Spirit, which means we bear fruit uh, to God and the kingdom of God. Look at verse 6 again. We are released from the law so that we may serve in the new way. Released from the law to, to self-reliance? No. Released from the law to do whatever uh, we feel like doing? No. Released from the law to serve in a new way, which is the way of the Spirit, meaning being moved and motivated to, to, to do God's things in God's power. Not to have to do God's things, but to say, I want to, to see God's things accomplished. Okay, very quickly, because I'm uh, running out of daylight. Galatians chapter 5. These are familiar passages, Galatians 5, 16 through 25. Uh, again, Paul contrasts the life of the Spirit and the life of the flesh. So I'm going to read Galatians 16, uh, 5, 16 through 25, kind of lengthy, and uh, just make a few comments. I, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you keep from gratifying the desires of the flesh? Self-discipline. Say no. Have an accountability partner. Take away opportunity. Okay, these are all halfway decent things, but the, the real way we overcome uh, the desires of the flesh is not to just say no to the flesh, because in a way that creates a law, which makes the flesh even more aroused to sin. What we instead do is, oh, I don't want to walk by the flesh. I want to walk 
by the Spirit. Verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious, aren't they? Let me list them for you, though, just in case they aren't, and also to make it awkward. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, you know, and things like these. I mean, things like these? I think you hit them all, Paul. I mean, really, what are the things like these? I think you hit kind of all of them. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here we have the fruit of the flesh, which leads to death. Now we have the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. One quick thing. We can't preach on Galatians 5 right now. The lists of the flesh were all things to be done. The fruits of the Spirit are all qualities of you. You see that? Did you notice that? The the fruit of the Spirit is not a to-do list. It's a to-be list. It's a be-like-Christ list. It means in the context of my life, what does it mean to be a person who is defined by these things? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited. So the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are character qualities that are expressed primarily in loving relationship to others. And when we put our faith in Christ, we are crucified with Christ. And the question now is, walking by the Spirit, wanting to have the joy of connection with Christ, the purpose of our life, to bear fruit to God, we want to live by the Spirit. Do we get to do whatever we want? Yes. And our prayer is that what we want to do is live by the Spirit. In fact, and I don't want to get put too strong a point on it, Paul's side point on Galatians 5 is, if you have no desire to live by the Spirit, good chance he's not hanging around. Meaning, we need to evaluate if our faith is in him. Because at some level, there's always going to be a tension between our flesh and our spirit. He said, there's always going to be a war. We're always having to, by faith, uh, say, I want to walk by the Spirit. And there's always a tension in our flesh, even today. But at the end of the day, we don't serve God out of obligation. We serve God by the Spirit, which is, I want to do the things of God because those are fruit for the kingdom of God. A new life and purpose, a life of freedom from sin, and a life of power by the Spirit. Just three quick things, and then we'll um, close with a a song. Uh, What is the place of shame and guilt uh, in the, the Christian life? Where is, it, where is the place of, of shame and guilt? Our identity in Christ is the result of God's grace. So what shame and guilt does in our life is it becomes an obligation, which means in order to be rid of my shame and guilt, I have got to be good enough for Jesus. I mean, he died for me. How could I possibly still be doing this? And so shame and guilt function as a sideways way of putting a law over us. And so we say, well, I don't want to do that anymore. And if I, if I stop doing that, the shame and guilt will slowly go away over time. The longer it's been since I uh, committed that heinous sin that I find so repulsive, uh, the less shame and guilt I have over time. 
The problem is that we're trying to solve our shame and guilt problem with a law solution. And the actual solution to our shame and guilt problem is when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, we take him serious. That uh, the, the point is, our shame and guilt is already gone. Sin's power over the Christian is to grind us into the ground and have us finally say, what's the point? I'm always going to blow it. That's the power of a shame and guilt law code that we put on ourselves. What's the point of trying? I'm always going to blow it. That's why we have to take seriously this. Is it actually finished? And the answer is yes. If that's true, there is no room for shame and guilt. We can, in, in fact, we can more profoundly and more clearly call sin, sin, because it has no bond over us on shame and guilt. We can look at something clear-eyed, and say, that's not right. I don't know why I'm still doing it, but that's not right. By God's grace, I don't have to experience shame and guilt on it because it is finished. And then I can address my sin problem by giving it to the Lord in repentance, as the Bible says in James, confessing it to a brother. Here's the sin problem, God. I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray that God would crucify my flesh, that I would, uh, God would do whatever he needs to do to, to work this sin out of my life. But do I need to walk around mopey, mopey until I get over my sin problem? No, because it is finished is what it is. It's done. I can, in fact, more boldly approach my sin because it doesn't hold any sway over me. Psalm 34, 8 says this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There is a, a profound joy that comes with knowing we get to serve God because he is so great to serve. The challenge here from the psalmist is this, try him out, serve him, bear fruit for the kingdom. You will see how great he is. Serving God in his kingdom is not an obligation that is difficult. In fact, Jesus said it is an easy yoke. And what he's saying is serving God and bearing fruit for the kingdom is the most delicious thing you can engage in in your life. Try him out. Try out, try them out and see if walking by the Spirit is more satisfying than walking by a law code or walking by the flesh. Finally, this, or if you're like me and you're tired of trying to feel better by being better, maybe it's time to finally admit you really need Christ's forgiveness. Or if you're a Christian today, you need to be reminded of the experience of Christ's forgiveness. If I only get to feel better in God when I am better in God, it, I hate to tell you this, it's not going to happen. If I only feel like a good Christian, if I'm a good Christian, I'm never going to feel like a good Christian. The only way I'm going to feel joy about my relationship with God is if the reality of my life in God is not defined by me, but it's defined by somebody else, and that is Christ. We need to trust him anew. He died for us. He rose for us. We can bear fruit for the kingdom of God with joy because uh, it is finished. Jesus gives us new life.